Welcome to Club Management. I'm your host, DJ Shannon, and on this show, we talk to artists, DJs, and industry professionals on how they're changing their community through music. You can listen to the show on any of your favorite platforms like SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just type Club Management. And this is episode 50. Happy New Year, y'all. It is officially 2022, and I hope everyone is getting their new year off to a good start. I know I am. I, I literally just came back from a nice trip visiting my folks in Miami, spent some time lounging with them, and it was everything I needed to set the tone right for this year. Remember what I say, rest, relaxation, reflection is the key to success. We say this all the time on this podcast, and this is something that I'm literally going to live by this year because last year I was just so hustled hustled should be (laughs) should be the word from now from now on hustled I felt very hustled and I felt uh you know kind of wrapped up in in the rat race so to speak so this year we are slowing down we are taking things slow we are doing things carefully and this is what 2022 is all about okay quick reminder before we jump into this week's episode I have officially pulled the plug on the club management website and I feel so bad if you have visited the website in the last couple of days and seen that you know gotten an error message or whatever is up there at this point um you know I I had to pull the plug on it really because I want to focus more on building the patreon and servicing my community over there since more and more people are joining every minute and to be quite honest I was just there was a lot of energy being put into the website that I just didn't necessarily have. And on top of all my other obligations, it was hard to keep up with. And it was taking a lot of resources too. So this year is all about simplifying, making things easier so I can really maximize my potential for this podcast. So there's no more website. From now on, you can catch all the exclusive content for the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash clubmanagement1. I'll have that info in the comments if you'd like to join us over there. You'll get early access to episodes and you'll learn a little bit more about me this year and what I've got going on musically over on Patreon. So please join us. Alrighty. So for today's show, we invite super producer Jenna Rush from Chicago. Jenna Rush's hefty catalog extends back to the dance mania heyday. She was dubbed the youngest female DJ under the label after she made an appearance on 1996's The Armageddon, a split collaborative EP with DJ Dion. With mentorship from some of the greats like Chicago's Juke King Gantman and the late great Paul Johnson, Jenna's production style slowly morphed, incorporating a bevy of sounds native to Chicago from footwork and juke to techno. The best thing about Jenna Rush is that she works at her own pace. There's absolutely no rush to create, and the time and care she puts into her craft is evident, especially on her last LP, Painful Enlightenment, a project that takes you on this intense roller coaster filled with different chaotic samples, sporadic percussion, and vocals. Jenna reminisced about her early beginnings cooking up tracks with Paul Johnson in his kitchen, why she takes her time with producing, and what she plans for 2022. Check this out. How's the weather going in Chicago during this time of year? Uh, right now, it's like just a little cold outside and a little rainy. It's, 
I mean, we haven't seen snow all year, so like it's kind of scary right now because we usually get something. But yeah, it's just rainy and, um, and a little cold out. Yeah, I was just about to say that. So I used to live in Chicago for like, wow, four to five years. And I remember like religiously around this time, there's a snowstorm coming. It's like below, you know, zero outside. So it's really weird. Yeah, it's like it's been happening a little bit in reverse. Seems like the last couple of, you know, last 10 years, I want to say probably uh, where like the snow doesn't really, really come until like January. That's crazy. Same thing here. Last week we got hit with like this crazy wild uh, warm front and it almost in yeah. the 60s for like a couple of days. And I was just like, uh-uh, this isn't right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It feels guilty. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but thank you so much for taking time to come chat with me for the podcast. Um, I have just been absolutely blown away with your music over the last, wow, couple of decades now that you've been making this incredible music. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Um, before we, well, well, let me introduce myself first off. Um, so I am a journalist, podcaster, DJ based in New York. I was actually uh, in China for a little bit, uh, teaching and doing some music stuff out there. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Michael from Data Club. He speaks so highly of you um, and has just kind of been dying for us to, to chat with one another. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I had so much fun when I was in China with um, Michael. He he was so funny. And um, I remember that the night after him and his girlfriend took me out to. Um, well, no, actually, when I after I did my set, we went out to another club. That club was so dope. They took such good care of me out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's been out there for a minute running Dada Club. I think they just opened a new location this year, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, yeah in Shanghai, I think or something. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I can't wait to get back out there and do some touring myself. Um, but yeah, so before actually we jump into your music, I'm really interested to hear about what you do with your, your day job and your multiple day jobs. Am I right? Um, right now, I'm just doing CAT scans. Oh, okay. Okay. So cat, you're a CAT scan technologist? Technologist? Technolo- um, technologist. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> technologist, yes. Yeah. Um, and then before that, you were doing some engineer work as well. Project management, construction project management. Yes, tell us about it. I think that's just so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, what I had to do was um, people would approach me with problems in their um, work area or uh, whatever process they were over. Because we um, basically process edible oil for confections. Wow. So we had like um, five processes on ground and each process had a building. So which means every building, you know, had different things they had to do. And when you bring equipment and, and buildings and stuff into the equations, you know, people either want to expand or they want to buy something or build something new or, you know, whatever. It's all it's going to involve, you know, like the site engineer or the project manager. Yeah. And that's basically what I did, you know, or, or you know, like. You know, if things were slow, I would have to do like um, process engineer type work, which is basically say if we got loads going out and the the lab numbers are not up to specification, Mm -hmm. then you have to kind of help them search and figure out why this could be happening. Like why is the oil maybe metabolizing a little bit too quickly and like we had shipments of oil, 
you know, by the time it reached the customer, it's rancid. Like, they can't use it, basically. So, why? what's, you know, what's going on with the chemical reactions that is breaking down so quick? Like, you can't even deliver it. So, it's like, you know, you have to help with something like that. But, yeah, basically, you know, um, I would get projects if something needs to be added or fixed. And um, I secured funding for it and um, had to fight sometimes and tell the company why you know this is a good idea you know basically i'm the mouthpiece for whoever wants what mm-hmm. come up with a reason why um submit the paperwork and estimates from other you know vendors of different sorts mm-hmm. and like basically stay on the brass to get funding for it and once you get funding then you have to um make sure to recalculate everything and make sure everything adheres to the budget basically so, I mean, you know, it sounds like a lot, but to me, it was just like secondhand kind of work. It's kind of like you just, I don't know, you're an entrepreneur, you got to secure funding for people. Yeah. You get your funding and you basically boss people, tell people what to do and they better hurry up and get it done by a certain day. That's basically what you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, you could even argue that there could be parallels between what you do as an engineer at CatScan Tech and as a producer, a music producer, right? Like, you know, yeah. I, would, I would imagine that there's some some similarities between the fields. Yeah, I mean, the entrepreneur side of things and like basically when you out there looking for gigs, you're trying to secure fundings to for your company to basically continue, you know, for your dream to continue of being a performer. You get what I'm saying? So it's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like the same thing. And then once you secure that funding, then you pretty much got your people like your agents you know it's like that's one of those weird relationships i'm not too sure who works for who i mean i guess it's based on how um quote unquote financially successful the artist is then Mm -hmm. the artist becomes the boss i guess but like Mm -hmm. you know um i don't know it's like at this point right now i'm not sure who works for who you know (laughs) (laughs) but it's so, yeah, it's kind of like the same thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And you have been doing this since you were 10 years old. That's, well, like making music and DJing since you were 10. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, basically I worked in my household. So you had to have, you could just be out hanging out on somebody's porch or, you know, just hanging out on the block. You know, my mother is like, the only way you're going to get out the house because my mother was gone a lot because she had to work. Mm-hmm. So the only way I could get out the house, you know, when she's not at work is it had to be something constructive to, for me to do or something where she can verify there was going to be some adults around. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came up with, you know, I I, I love music because I had radio. So I was, you know, I jumped on the first opportunity to become a DJ on WKKC. So. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I had um, a couple of uh, Dance Mania alum on the show previously, and, and Tracksman was telling me about how, you know, radio was paramount to everything, and, and it was a great way for people to get their mixtapes out there and for people to actually listen to a lot of the creative music that was coming out of the South Side, West Side of Chicago. And like, I totally understand that. I love that history between like the radio and and you know different scenes, the cultivation of different scenes, rather. But yeah, I was actually kind of scrounging up on YouTube and watching some of your videos, and I overheard you say that you made your first track 
at the legendary Paul Johnson's home and a rest in peace to him. I mean, what an incredible, incredible producer, an incredible DJ. Um, I would love to hear that story. So like I met Paul, first of all, I met him through Barbecue Bobby. He's a, he's a personality on WKKC. And basically he, Barbecue Bobby had a Sunday show where he would, you know, whatever the newest tracks were, he would, you know, play them, play the whole record for you. You know what I mean? You know, like when Robert Armani come out with shit, he'll play the whole track. And I guess people were sending him tracks and um, Paul sent him some shit. And um, of course, one day, Barbecue Bobby had him on to interview him. And I called up there. I had to call up there and because I, I wanted to meet Paul. His, cold, his tracks was cold. <laughs> so, you know, we exchanged numbers and everything. And at some, at some point, I winded up going over to his house when he lived on 114th and Prairie in Roseland. And, um, yeah, he basically introduced me to his equipment, you know, and, you know, like, showed me and told me what a metronome was and how to make a beat. And, you know, the easiest way to make a beat, you know, like, just a quick beat just to start out. Like, that's where it all started. And, yeah, like, when, you know, like, when I was getting the hang of things, like, Paul would be in and out because, you know, like, shortly after he started making tracks, he became a busy man. So he will be in and out, and I'll just be making tracks. It's like, as many tracks as I can to get it recorded before he gets he has to leave. So that's pretty much how um, it happened. And, I, you know, I watched him a lot. I mean, you know, like, what used to get me with Paul is basically I felt like at the time, I don't know if this is true, but at the time, you could tell you could tell you could tell him any track you can request any track mm. and somehow he can remake that track like he can get the key of the song right he can tune the drums up the way they're supposed to sound and he can make the beat like that that was the thing that was the coldest thing to me like he could do and he could do it in under like five minutes like what like this man was like something different like for real for real like this is stuff people don't know about like yeah. yeah you know like paul like before you know you can get a good beat going he probably understand your beat before you you know more than you do you know what i mean and it's just like he could just do any like any beat i asked him he'll just sit there and do it and it'd be really quick and like his workflow was so tight like with everything so mm -hmm. it's just like yeah that man was a beast that's wild. And I really loved um, how you said his setup was a bit unconventional at the time. Like he was working out of his kitchen. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And somehow he managed to not like his mother didn't get grease or anything on none of his equipment. <laughs> and it's like that. That's what that first record is about. Or not. It, that wasn't his. Was it his first album? I don't think that was his. It was on. the. I think the label was in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But. Anyway, that he was associated, you know, like mid nineties with the, you know, in the kitchen. He actually he had a label at one point called in the, in the kitchen, and that's basically what it was all about. That's the joke. That was a back, you know, backside joke because back then, I mean, first of all, nobody like had studios, and definitely not in the kitchen. Like, mm -hmm. come on, like people cooking and shit. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, he his equipment was immaculate. And yeah, we used to have to get out the kitchen when his mother started cooking because she tell me and Gant she didn't want to hear that shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. What were you, what kind of equipment were you guys using at the time to to produce? Uh, when I met Paul, what did he have? What was the first drum machine? Oh yeah, when I met Paul, he had an RZ one. 
And I want to say, shit. When I met Paul, he, oh yeah, he had an RZ1 and he had a um, DR660, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Rhythm or, you know, the Boss 660. Yeah. And he had a um, the RZ1. And like, every time I went over his house, he had something different. Like, I know he got, I think he got rid of that RZ1 pretty quick and then he winded up with the RX7. Then he had that for a minute. Then next time I come back, he got like a 909 and everything. He was buying like all the actual modules. You know, he had the, um he would use the 660 as an 808, but he, you know, I went back over there, he had a whole ass real 909. And then he kept that for a minute. Then he had the, um he copped that Akai SO1 sampler, which he made a couple of hits off that shit. He kept that SO1 sampler for some years. And then he bought, he winded up upgrading a 660 to an R70. And then, you know, like he held that on for a minute. And then after that, you know, like that was pretty much the last setup that I saw that Paul had was that um, he had the um, the SO1, mm. the um, Rollins, the, um, the R70, and yeah, the 909. That was the last setup in a big ass mixer board in his room. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm you know up after that, I'm sure he upgraded. But yeah, that is like he yeah, and a lot of um, knowledge I had about equipment I got from his house. You know, I got from him sometime let me um, hold his drum machine overnight or whatever, so I can you know just learn it. So mm -hmm. it's just like yeah, that yeah, he he was like. He and he and it's like not just me. He helped a lot of motherfuckers like this. So his man, like, it's a lot of people that probably wouldn't be out there if it was if they had never met Paul. You know, mm -hmm. let's just say that. Yeah, I've heard that from so many people that he was just a, a really beautiful mentor, just a, a really beautiful spirit. So you start producing, and then how does your journey becoming the youngest female DJ with Dance Mania come about? Um. Well, I started DJing at KKC like when I was like 10. Mm. Yeah. I got on the, the radio show. I started out with a, a weekend spot every Saturday morning. And um, I, yeah, I couldn't mix for shit for years. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had a mentor, but, you know, he was also a teenager too. So, you know, like, you know how that go. Yeah. You know? So basically, you know, Gant, he would come and show me what he knew. But, you know, like, at the end of the day, you know, DJing is not a friendly sport. So it's like, you know, he was going to show me everything. You know what I mean? So, but he helped me as much as he could. So I just had to feel my way through DJing. I stayed up at the radio station till about, I want to say, 1997, 98. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I met Nafis, DJ Nafis up there. I met um, Gatman up there. I met DJ Rashad up there. Um, shit. Uh, who else did I meet up there? That was well. I kind of met Paul up there. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I met Dion up there when he came up there to drop off some of his promo copies. I think that was the first time I met Dion. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like I I met a lot of people up at KKC. Mm hmm. And then uh, you know, eventually you and DJ Dion came out with that Slammer EP. Uh, Armageddon, yeah, that was in 1996. How old were you when that came out? I was like, I think I was 16, maybe. Wow. My favorite track off of uh, the Armageddon is Terminal Velocity. 
just to let you know. Um, oh, and I'm wondering <laughs> how long did it take you to, to create this track? What was the inspiration behind it? I mean, I guess at that time I couldn't really say it. it was, I had inspiration. Yeah. Uh, I made that track on a 660, basically when Paul let me keep a 660. And I was fucking around with the effects because I noticed Paul, he, you know, from at least the 660, he didn't use the 660 effects a lot. So, like, when he let me keep his drum machine, I remember I was, you know, and sitting in my corner at home where I used to always do with the drum machine and the earphones on, and I was just fucking around with, like, um, all of the effects, like the chorus, the flanger, and that's kind of, like, how I came up with that. So, it's just, like, me just basically learning the drum machine. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I absolutely love it. And you know what? It's it's crazy to think about that, like, even now there are so many producers that are trying to replicate or heavily uh, heavily inspired by um, Dance Mania and the incredible music that came from the label. I mean, you really do hear that sound or that that kind of swing, that, that kind of chaotic off-kilter of the... Yeah. The, high hats and a lot of people's music um and you guys really set the presidents you know like you yeah. set it with with the music that was coming off the label um and now here we are where you're still making music but i really love that you're making it on your own terms you there doesn't feel like you know even though your name is jenna rush there's no rush for you necessarily to make music am i right <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really i mean because um I don't know. I just like to try to keep myself without or at least one out. So it's just like, you know, mm -hmm. one thing's not working, then, you know, you just do something else or you don't have to, you know, like everything is not held together by one thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I know people um, always get so quick to say, um, Jack of all trades, master of none. But mm -hmm. I mean, like, I feel like right now, nowadays, you kind of see what's, what's happening to a lot of the masters. I mean, you out here, you only got one thing that you can do, you, you're in trouble, you know? And it's like, you're also limited to like, really, you know, like, I don't know, being at peace with yourself, I guess. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. I really love that. And yeah, I think that like, you, some people, especially when they get really deep into this music thing, that like some people lose their sense of identity, but throughout every EP and project and album that you've put out, you really maintain that, that, that sense of self in each and every last project. And um, I want to talk about the most recent EP or album rather that came out in August, Painful Enlightenment. There's just so many gold, like there's so much gold on this that I don't even know where to start, to be honest. Uh, one of my favorite tracks off of Painful Enlightenment is uh, Driving Me Insane. And that is just uh, the sample. What, did, what sample did you use in that track? That's um, Nancy Fortune. I don't know if you ever heard of her. Um, yeah, she had asked me... Actually, I did that as a project for her, and um, she had did a few uh, um, EP, and she had a few tracks on there, and she asked me to do to remix a few of her tracks, and I did that, and that was basically one of the remixes. And I mean, out of the two remixes I did for her, I felt like that was what I would fuck with the most, so I gave it to Mike 
Paradinas, and I just wanted to see if he would fuck with it. I didn't think he would, but <laughs> I guess he surprised me with that. So yeah, yeah, it's so good. And then another one is Disturbed. You know what? I really love this um, album in particular because I feel like it's like always transitioning into something, whether that be like a heavy trap beat, you got your essence of footwork and juke in there, and then it's just all over the place, but in the best way possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like, I mean, I kind of feel like I want to keep it kind of like that because it's kind of like, it's just like certain things. I mean, I'm one of those type of people, I like a little mix up in there, you know, I like, yeah. you know, a little bit of the good and the bad. And because mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of like when people try to mix, do a whole mix of one key or something. It's like, to me, it's like, some people may love it. Mm -hmm. and I just, to me, it's like, it's strange to me. I can't fuck with it, you know, because <laughs> it, it's like you become too used to, you know, how things are being done. And it just become back. It becomes background noise. It's like mm. I don't want to become background noise. I want to kind of feel get filtered out. Mm -hmm. No, of course, of course. And then this album was your follow up to Pariah. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, Pariah, and that was off. That was was that still with Planet Moo as well? No, that was Objects Objects Limited. Ah, Objects Limited. Yes. This project is also extremely amazing. And um, I'm a big, big fan. I'm trying to find the name of the track right now. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of Midline Shift. Oh, my goodness. That is just yeah. like glamour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you're preparing to do. I mean, obviously, there's not so much going on given the pandemic and all of this craziness going on around the world. Um, but were you thinking about going on tour or? Yeah, I'll be on tour in April of um, 2022. I'll be on tour um, overseas for about a month. Um, I'm, this time I'm definitely going to hit Amsterdam. I know that for a fact. And Germany. But um, yeah, I'll be overseas for about a month. And um I got a few projects that I'm working on right now, an EP and um, an album. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just mainly, you know, laying low because it's also important for me to have my me time and do what I need to do, you know? Yeah, of course. You got to have that balance. And you know what? I tell people all the time that rest really helps propel creativity and like, you know, gives you some of your best ideas when you feel good. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really good. And then any new uh, albums on the horizons or EPs that you might currently be working on? Yeah, I got um, an album. I haven't um, finalized the details yet, but on my side, I feel like I'm more than likely going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, EP-wise, I got an EP coming out on It's a Party. It's a label, you know, based in Chicago. One of my mm -hmm. guys, Chris Santoso, Chris Santoso. He um, runs the label. Um, yeah, and I'm just like, you know, I don't want to oversaturate because I just, um, I got, you know, an EP also coming out on Planet Move um, sometime in the spring. And it's called Dark Humor. So, yeah, it's like, you know, I don't want to oversaturate either, you know. Mm -hmm. No, it's okay. You know, take your time, take as much as you need. 
um, really quickly before I let you go, I um, have nothing but special memories about some parties that Gantman used to throw at, uh, I believe it was Beauty Bar in Chicago. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. So when I lived there, I would be at Beauty Bar religiously <laughs> every yeah. month to dance at those parties. And did you did you end up playing at one of those as well? Uh, I can't remember. I don't, I don't think so, but I can't remember. I know. <laughs> There were so many incredible people there. Uh, but I love that, that you guys have been so connected with one another since the start of, of Dance Mania. And I just think it's so special, you know, everything. Oh, yeah, that's my boy. Yeah. I mean, Rashad was my boy, too. I mean, that, like, he, that was my real G. You know, like, we used to do, you know, me and Rashad, like, this was when we was first starting out. So we used to do, like, you know, we, we did some fucked up shit to get on, you know, like, we used to <laughs> come in and intimidate niggas when we come to the fucking party, like, who I'm playing nice, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's just like, because I mean, back in the day, like, for real, for real, you know, you know, like, you had, you was up against these older DJs, and of course, a lot of them, a lot of them knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, the, especially, you know, the music that we had to play, they ain't want to fuck with that, you know? So it's just like, we had to come in, like, not only confident, but sometimes disrespectful. And it was like, that's, you know, like, that's the one thing me and Rashad used to love is when it was, when it was time to DJ or something like that at a party, we love being disrespectful about it. You know what I mean? We ain't getting no fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No, that, I mean, yeah. You know what? When I was um, chatting with Tracksman, he was saying that there's a difference between the footwork music that was coming out from the West side um, as opposed to the South Side. And was yep. that true in your opinion as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Like, what, like, sonically, because it might be hard for some people to tell, right? Like, what are some of the key differences between a, a South Side track and a West Side track? So, like, the people who's running the South Side, the people who's running the West Side, you had D-Man on the West Side, you had Tracksman on the West Side, you had, um, who else? You had Jam and Gerald on the West Side. You got Dion on the south side. You got DJ Milton on the south side. You got DJ Lima on the south side. You got DJ PJ on the south side. You got wow. DJ Chip on the south side. So it's like, you know, <laughs> like, in my opinion, a lot of the, um, a lot of the West Side stuff was more like, it sounded like, except for Jam and Gerald, his stuff came out really clear. It sounded like very amateur, but it was cold as fuck. Mm-hmm. And it was real bassy, you know, like heavy 808 bassy type stuff. It was like very analog and like, but it was dope as fuck. And they always came out, you know, with bangers that was like, it was weird. It was banger in the, in the, in the actual, in the, in the neighborhood, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't mainstream. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. But, like in Chicago, if you didn't know what Dookie Booty was, people weren't fucking with you. It was like, what the fuck is this? Like, come on. Like, who, what? You know? But, um, like, then on the south side, you got Dion. Dion, like, the only person on the west side that I know that would use a 909 in their tracks is, oh, yeah, DJ Funk sometimes, but DJ Funk was an 808 man, sound like. Mm-hmm. And um, DJ Jam and Jero did a lot of 909 type kicks or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, mainly the West Side was 808, heavy bass, and just like um, airy and very analog and warm sounding like bass of music. You know what I mean? Yeah. South Side, you got DJ Dion. They got they they got they sound with the 808 or whatever. They got they little um, 
Planet Rock sounding tracks and everything, you know, you can just hear the similarities. But Dion was also like floating a little bit with the techno. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was fucking with everything, you know, and he, but it all, it always had a, um, the um, swing was also always like G like though. It didn't matter if it was techno, it still had a don't fuck with me swing to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't like completely all washed out white, you know, just techno and loud. You know, it was like, yeah. this shit is cold. You know what I mean? Whereas <laughs> the West Side, you know, like I said, it was like, it was black boy type music, like black boy type ghetto fucking music. And yeah, like, yeah. And kick that bitch in the neck, shit like that. You know? <laughs> Talking about what you gonna do to a bitch, like, like not, no, some, it, it sound like a bitch that you had in the basement tied up, some shit like that. Oh my god! Like kick that bitch in the neck. What the fuck is that? You know. <laughs> Whereas the West Side, you know, it was like all the hoes out south, dick and balls in your. It was like talking about sucking your, you know, getting your dick sucked and all that shit. <laughs> you know, like, so. I um, but you you were actually from are you from the south side or the west side of Chicago? I'm from the south side. South side, okay. So you were soaking up all those elements on the south side, and um, yeah, I was DJ Dion, DJ Milton all the way. Yeah, like you know, I knew about DJ Funk, Jam and Gerald. I I love his tracks, but you know, everybody else, I wasn't really fucking with them because I know them like that. Yeah. You know, Jam and Gerald, like I, you know, like I said, you know, the people that it was people from the south side who could cross over. And, you know, it wasn't even necessarily a South Side versus West Side any, anyway. It wasn't no animosity. But I'm just saying it was people from our clique that can come over to West Side and play a party and people will still come and pack the place out and be like, yeah, that motherfucker cold as hell. You know what I mean? Like, Jam and Gerald was a crossover. He can come to the South Side and get it, too. You know, motherfuckers would love to pay to get in and see his ass, DJ. Definitely. But, um, yeah, DJ Dion, he can come, you know, he could have came on the West Side and motherfucker pack out a whole fucking park. So, you know, it was like it was always love for certain people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, with being the first female, first and only female DJ and producer with Dance Mania, um, were there any challenges for you or did you feel like sometimes you had to work a little bit harder to prove yourself in the scene? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, I'm gonna put it to you like this. Like a lot of motherfuckers, like, I had to, like a lot of what I do know and I don't even know everything, but a lot of what I do know, I literally had to learn by trial and error by myself. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of times people weren't giving me hints, you know, like, and you know, um, niggas need to stop. Like guys are always giving each other, you know, it's always, you know, that bond with some motherfucker, they, they be helping out. They find ways to help each other. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. might not tell you right away or directly, but they find ways to help each other out. They got a communication style. Whereas, you know, like I said, I ain't complaining because actually I felt, I feel like I came on a, you know, I understand things from a different perspective, but yeah, it's like, you know, I had to, like, Paul told me some basic stuff, but like, I had to figure out about tuning. I had to figure out all that shit about um, beat matching. I had to fuck up on the radio, you know, wasn't nobody holding my hand and I, and, you know, and I'm just saying like, remember, though, I was a kid when I learned this. Like, this wasn't me being some 25-year-old adult, like, bitch, right. play for a class or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, like, this is when I'm supposed to be getting taught. And it's just like, you know, I had to do a lot myself. And I'm I'm not bitter about it, but, and 
I mean, it's kind of weird. I do agree with, you know, like off subject, I do agree with like ignorance is bliss. You know, like if you don't make certain things a big deal to kids, kids will never make it a big deal and they won't be so worried about it. Right. Like, I mean, for years, I wasn't, I always knew I was a girl, but it was like, like I was able to basically navigate and not have everything tied to my gender at home. Mm, right. And I think that makes a big difference because I didn't look at it at the time. I didn't look at it like, oh, y'all just ain't doing this because I'm a girl, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't crying at the rink when they told me to go home. I didn't cry and be like, ah, it's because I'm a fucking girl. It's like, <laughs> I just was like, well, fuck it. I'm going back up there. I didn't, e I didn't even start thinking about gender or anything. I was just like, fuck this shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's the way you got to do it, you know, because it shouldn't matter at the end of the day, you know, as long yeah. as you have the passion and, and the um, the drive to want to learn the craft and, and get better at your craft. That's the only thing that should matter, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's to the point where it's like, um, like, I'm so dissociated, I guess, with gender and situations about age. It's like, sometimes I forget that it matters to certain people. You know what I mean? Sometimes I do. I mean, I guess it sounds, I do forget, I guess, some things are not happening because I'm a female. Because it's just like, I just don't usually have to go there. I just do what I need to do as a person. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, a, that's definitely the way that it should be. So I'm so really excited to see where you're going next. And uh, when you do head on tour, hopefully I can come on tour with you. <laughs> because... Oh. I, really, I need to like yeah get back out there as well um it's just been so out of the you know just crazy with all this coronavirus stuff that's going on so yeah i know okay yeah yeah so yes if people uh want to find out more about your music and follow you on social media where do they find you um find me on instagram channel rush you could uh find me on facebook channel rush everything is pretty much on the channel rush i got a band camp through planet move you know, but generous again, I mean, yeah. We're coming out of the interview between me and Jenna Rush. One of my favorite parts about this interview um, is when Jenna touched on the topic of ageism. And somebody is always creating these dumb fallacies that we have to have something accomplished by a certain age. And it's completely not true, I just want to say. Um, you know, you can still DJ in your 30s, 40s, and 50s and really make a lucrative career off of it if you, you know, work hard enough. And in the case of Jana, we see her doing that. I know my producers in particular are always worried about getting music out all the time and they're worried about making these hits. But, you know, I just want to remind folks, it should never be about production and speed. And this is coming from someone who doesn't produce, but just has seen so much work and effort come into this thing from so many talented musicians. And this is what I hear time and time again from them. They're, they tell me it's all about quality and above all else making something that you actually really love and that you actually care for before anything else right and when that comes out it comes out you know you don't necessarily have to put pressure on yourself to meet these unrealistic goals because at the end of the day they're all messed they're all made up anyways right so you work at your own pace and on your own timeline it's literally 
you against you and no one else, you know? You always want to aspire to do better than what you did before, and it's never to be measured against anyone else's productivity or anyone else's timeline of success or what you think their version of success might be because your version of success may look totally different. So this just serves as a reminder for you and even myself at times um, because I tend to see so many of my peers hitting those milestones with, you know, their careers, marriage, kids, buying their homes, all that jazz, but it's never good to compare. So Literally do you family and work at your own pace. All right. Well, there you have it. Episode 50 of Club Management is a wrap, but please feel free to join us over on Patreon again. You get early access to episodes on our community. I'll be sharing some exclusive content about myself, DJing, uh, other little tidbits that you'll find over there. So please make sure you tap in with us at patreon.com slash club management one. The link is actually going to be in the comment section. So make sure you take a look down there until next time, folks.